Dear listeners, welcome back to this latest episode of the podcast series, The Way Out Is In. I'm Joe Confino, working at the intersection of personal transformation and systems evolution. And normally, as you know, um, I would have Brother Fapu, the abbot of Upper Hamlet, with us. But um, he is on monastic retreat, so it's just me today. But actually, in truth, it's not just me, because we have a very special guest, Cairo Jewel Lingo, who was a nun in Plum Village for 15 years and is now an international mindfulness teacher who provides spiritual mentoring to individuals and communities working at the intersection of racial, climate, and social justice. The way out is in. Welcome back, listeners. I am Joe Confino. And we are very, very honoured to welcome Kyra Jewel Lingo. Kyra Jewel, welcome. Thank you, Joe. Very good to be with you. So we're going to look at all sorts of things today, but let's start by sort of helping our listeners to understand your journey of um, how did you come to the Plum Village practice? Sure. Um, so I always have to tell this story by describing how I was raised, because I was raised in a kind of monastic, quasi-monastic Christian community that my parents joined that was for families. It was a family religious order. And um, they set up uh, human development projects, village development projects all over the world in every time zone. And modeled their life on a monastic flow of the day. So we started every day with daily office. And so I remember waking up quite early as a young child to go down and pray and sing and chant and reflect. The children were cared for communally. So we, we, we had our rooms with our families, but there was communal child care and a lot of emphasis on a being of service and living a life of spiritual meaning. So I was in this community from birth till 14. And after leaving, I remember really feeling uh, a bit lost. Um, and that I had this yearning to find community uh, and a spiritual path all through my young, young uh, adulthood. And so um, as soon as I was, I was about to graduate from college and um, Ram Das came to my university and he said, you know, you learn a lot here, but you don't learn how to be happy. And that really struck a chord because I was thinking, well, should I go on and do a PhD? I had just finished a master's. I liked school and and yet I found something was, was missing. I didn't know how to be happy. I didn't know how to take care of my suffering. I didn't know how to not create suffering for others. And so, um, so I thought, let me look for a spiritual teacher and a community. So that was when I was 
um, 22, and I went to India, traveled for three months, went to Egypt and Ethiopia, and anyway, I included Plum Village on my year-long trip. Well, it ended up, I stopped at Plum Village. I didn't go any further. I spent the, the summer retreat in 1997, and as soon as I saw Thai, I knew, oh, this is my teacher. This is the person I've been looking for. And the community also was fell in love with the community immediately and saw that they were really practicing Thai's teachings and began to learn immediately practices to deepen happiness and transform suffering and called my dad and said, you got to come here. And <laughs> he went on a retreat with Thai, started a sangha, you know, be- became a dedicated practitioner too. So I just canceled the rest of my trip around Europe and just spent four months in Palm Village. And at the end of that time, I thought, why don't I do this all the time? And so that was when the idea of ordaining arose. And Karen, when you said, when I met Thay, mm-hmm. I just knew this was my teacher. What, what was the essence? What was your experience? Yeah. Well, I had read Old Path White Clouds on before I got to Plum Village, and I and it touched me so deeply. So the seeds were already there. <laughs> and then his way of, of being, his way of talking, everything in me just resonated with a re- kind of recognition. I mean, I as I've practiced more on this path, I, I really do sense that we... You know, our consciousnesses have have been here before, and I I really feel like there was a a recognition uh, that there may have been some some time spent before I I was born into this body, Um, but it was that level of like, oh, you know, not anything at the thinking discursive mind level but more very deep like um, I want to follow this person he embodies everything that I want to learn and and live and his presence was just so powerful the compassion so palpable and the joy and the the steadiness and I just I it, it was just something in me knew this is where I need to be following following Thai and tell us, Kara Jewel, about when you were ordained and you were given the name Sister Jewel, mm. what, what has been the journey of that name? So even though you disrobed after 15 years, that, that's still a core part of your name. So I would love to know a bit about, um, yeah. about that. So, so the, the practice of giving a Dharma name um, Thai would give each of the monastic disciples a name. So we'd write a letter asking, requesting to become a monastic. And, and I think he would really look at what our aspirations were and find a name that both reflected what we already are and also encouraged us to develop more in a particular direction. So it was a two sides of... of um, that same uh, quality was like, uh, you know, sorry for my dog barking. Um, well, we have lots of natural sounds interspersing <laughs> the podcast, so, so this will fit in very well. Okay. Um, so, you know, when I first heard the name 
Sister Jewel. So I, I first had it in, it was Chan Chongyim, True Adornment with Jewel. And then he, and I started to be called Sister Jewel. But um, at first I thought, oh, that's too flashy. I, I wanted it to be very, you know, <laughs> I just wanted to be this very simple nun. And, and so I kind of asked other sisters, why do you think he gave me that name? And one sister, Sister Fern, actually, she, she gave me a really helpful reply. She said, well, if you think about a diamond, it's, um, it's all these impurities that become something very um, clarified and, and, uh, and pure because of all this pressure. And so I thought, oh, yeah, the, the sangha is a kind of force that kind of purifies your heart and mind. And then, then I thought, oh, I, I, I like that expression. And then I actually asked Ty, uh, I said, why did you name me that? And he, he was a little defensive. He said, it's a good name. And then he, he told me the story of um, the wish-fulfilling jewel in uh, Chinese lore of these brothers that go out on this journey and they find a wish-fulfilling jewel. And so he was kind of giving, giving me that angle on the name and and that's also a, a, in different tantric Buddhist practices, this concept of a wish-fulfilling jewel. And so I think I've tried to practice with it as, a, as an affirmation of, of something in me that I um, do my best to radiate, you know, peace and, and um, presence and really sh- showing up for my life and also a um an aspiration to you know not not have obscurities that cloud cloud me from really perceiving clearly and so it's it, that's that's a lifelong <laughs> many life lifetimes of, of practice to to really have that kind of mind that's clear and when you um heard about Ty's passing. Um, how how did you respond in the sense of because at, at those moments, in a sense, we we come back to the core essence, don't we, of mm. what he represented, what he what he his you know what he meant meant to you. Yeah. And I'm just wondering what what you've been working with around that. Yeah, yeah. The moment I learned that he had passed away. Um, I just closed my eyes and I really was in touch with how he was so free already. I just, the image that came was of a bird flying in the sky. And I just thought, now you you get to be even more free. Like you were already free. Now it's just a continuation of that freedom. So there was a quite a lightness of heart when I learned he died and a, a joy at all that he was able to communicate, often without words, um, in his presence. And, you know, what I've been reflecting on and practicing with since he passed is really how can I embody what he offered us as deeply as possible you know, every day from the simplest things to you know the less simple 
And it, it's interesting, Kyra and Jill, because in, in the monastery and also a lot of lay practitioners have sort of taken Thais passing as this clarion call to step up. Mm. That actually, in a sense, everyone's been sort of not in Thais shadow, but in a sense, he's the Zen master and I'm just his student. Mm. And I'll do my best, but he's the boss. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now with him passing into another realm, it's sort of leading people to say, actually, well, actually, it's me. Uh, mm-hmm. I need to step up. And mm-hmm. I'm, ju- I'm just wondering whether there's been a sense in you, you know, you talk about embodying, but, but whether there's anything else that's come into your being around mm-hmm. how you want to take mm-hmm. this forward, this work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really felt it most strongly when he had the stroke in 2014. That's when I really felt, and I talked to other people in our community, Dharma teachers, who had a similar experience to me at that time of like, because he wasn't able to teach verbally anymore at that point, although he de- definitely continued to teach in other ways, I felt like my, my presence as a teacher as someone carrying on Thai's teachings, um, became more, uh, it's hard to put words on it, but it just felt more solid in me. It felt more, it felt more um, like it was taking up more space. <laughs> like him in me was more, was manifesting more strongly. And other, other teachers, Dharma teachers also said that, that they felt like because he couldn't be teaching anymore, we all, were like more empowered in a way. Uh, and so that's what I felt then. And yeah, I think since his you know, physical passing out of the, his body, I really, I feel like I, I'm so lucky to have had the time I had with him. Sometimes working closely in, in certain, you know, projects, books, or, you know, wake up schools or you know sometimes you know really and going on trips with him I just I feel like I just want to share like consolidate in me get more and more clear like remember the stories and and share them and and like and it's what I've been doing all along even before he had the stroke I was always sharing what he had given to me and others that I you know had the chance to learn from too but but I think there's just this sense of it was so precious that time that I really would like to make, you know, um, to share however I can. Share stories, share insights, um, reflect on his life and keep learning from him. Carol, is that um, one vignette of a story you can share with us? That, that's sort of a, like a moment in time with Ty that that's in a sense embodies your relation with him what he meant to you just just something you know uh, an experience you had with him that sort of tells us something sure yeah well um i was i was the first black monastic the first person to be ordained with african heritage and when i came when i was a novice you know it was not common to see black people coming to Plum Village. 
And when they would come, there would just be this upsurge of joy in me and kind of wanting to run and hug them <laughs> because there was just this feeling of, oh, thank you for being here. And I want you to know that I'm black because um, being mixed, I, I often, I think, blended in with the Vietnamese uh, monastics and with shaved head. You know, it just was kind of a little ambiguous, <laughs> my heritage. And so I remember feeling kind of torn about that because I thought, well, as a nun, I should be equanimous and love everyone equally. And so I wrote to Tai about this saying, you know, I, uh, what should I do? And he came to Lower Hamlet um, where I was a novice and all of the sisters had, were gathered in his room with him and we were discussing what color to paint the meditation hall. And... Um, and out of the blue, he looked at me and he said, black is beautiful, and laughed. <laughs> and everyone laughed, you know, and it was, of course, we're not going to paint the meditation hall black. <laughs> but it was this kind of secret response to my letter to him, because we were always, we could always write letters, and he would respond in his talks or in, in these Zen master ways. But I really understood then when he said that, that, I could be free to love people that I loved and, and it could be simple and it I, I could affirm that longing in me to really uh, honor that part of myself. Um, so it was just such a beautiful and, and uh, affirming yes to who I was and what I was struggling with at that point. And, and as you say, for a, a Zen master, they don't have to give you an hour's lecture. It can be just a, yeah. just a look and a phrase and, and it's all understood. Yeah. Now, Karajul, after 15 years, you disrobed and, and people listening might be, well, God, you know, fully in the practice, you were part of this community, you were with the Zen master of your life. And, um, and then you decided to sort of move into another sort of, phase of your life what, what's going on for you yeah at that time that that questioned whether this path was for the rest of your life yeah well there was a deep yearning to really express the mothering quality and I and I thought that meant a biological child it was I was late 30s you know biological clock ticking and I really, you know, when I had, I ordained when I was 25 and I felt very clear I didn't need to have children. I planned to spend my whole life as a nun. But so this, this other call really woke up in me as, as I was completing my 30s and I worked very hard to not <laughs> respond to it and thought maybe this is just going to pass. So for two years in the monastery, I just sat with that and, and then it didn't pass. And I thought, well, I don't know what else to do with this than to try to understand it, give it space. 
So for another two years outside of the monastery, but still in robes, I continued to sit with it. So I did three months silent retreats at Vipassana centers, just really holding this question, do I need to be a biological mom? Because this urge feels so strong. And then um, I decided to disrobe. It did feel like there was a, as I was out in the world, still as a nun, I was seeing there was a path for me as a lay Dharma teacher, because I didn't want to stop having practice be the center of my life. And then what I realized some four years after I disrobed was um, that push to become a mother was uh, some karma that I needed to work through. And I needed to do all the things, you know, be in a relationship and explore that possibility. And, and what ended up happening was I, I really came to the place of seeing that was a karma that needed to be released, but it had to come up so that it could be released. And so um, there was a great lightness of letting that go um, and realizing that's not actually what I need to do in this lifetime, um, but I, I needed to go on that journey of realizing that. So it was, it was almost like something from another time came and needed to work itself out on that journey of discovery. And so, um, so now I feel very clear and rooted in being a lay practitioner, a teacher, uh, in, a, in a loving relationship that I, you know, hope will be for the rest of my life. And we, we, but neither of us want children, so, we're, you know, we have our puppy. Anyway, so I think there's a, a real gratitude for all that I received as a nun. It was, you know, I don't regret any moment of time being a nun. It was so, so precious. And also I feel everything I've done since has, I have felt in every moment that I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. I never felt regret for leaving. I never felt I should be doing something else. It really was like life led me from one thing to the next to the next, and I just needed to follow and allow things to unfold. And I feel like now being in the world, I can offer, you know, Thai's teachings, Plum Village practices to places where they wouldn't otherwise have gone if I were in ropes. Um, and I love being with the community, coming to the practice centers, practicing with the monks and nuns, with the sangha, you know, whenever I can. And I still feel very connected and part of the family. And so I'm, I'm just grateful that, that that thread didn't need to break for me to have this very <laughs> profound realization. And, and let, let's move on to, in a sense, this phase of your life. But, but before we let go of the old one, in terms of the podcast, not in terms of your life, um, Tai was, um, you know, as the, as the teacher and the Zen master, you know, obviously always felt very sad when someone left the, um, left, uh, disrobed and, and left. And I just wondered how, um, how Tai was about um, yeah. about you going and and he was very protective of his flock and yeah. also he recognized yeah. that people had their own path so I was just interested in yeah. how he responded yeah. you know um he didn't 
he didn't judge or I could just tell he, he wanted me to stay, but he wasn't, um, he wasn't pulling me to stay. It was, it was very beautiful, actually. Um, I knew he loved me. I knew the Sangha loved me. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, really. Actually, it was the hardest thing I've ever done to leave the, the monastic uh, life. Um, and, and to do something that so many people that I loved and respected didn't want me to do. It was sort of the first time in my life I'd ever gone against, you know, not against, but not done what, what was expected of me um, by so many. And um, nobody in the community judged me or shamed me or blamed me. There was just sadness and, uh, you know, a wishing for, for it to somehow be possible for me to stay. But there was there was a really beautiful, I think, on both sides, just uh, this, the love was so mutual that there was a real wish to, you know, part with love. And so I, I didn't know I wanted to disrobe when I first left the community. I just knew I needed space to make the decision. So I asked for a year sabbatical and the Sangha allowed me that. And then as time went on, I wrote back and I said, you know, I I need more time, and eventually I realized I was going to disrobe. So, but Ty was, um, I think, sad, and and still I felt his love very strongly. There was no mm. pushing away. Beautiful. Yeah. So let's focus, Karajul, on your practice since then. Um, one one of the things I really wanted to explore with you um, is your work with Black, Indigenous, and um, people of color. It's it's a real commitment you made. And as you said, you were one of the only black women to be ordained. And um, I'm, ju- I'm just wondering about what it is about your commitment to serve those communities that's so important to you. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, what's so powerful about Ty's teaching and the community is this huge heart of inclusiveness. You know, Thai and the Sangha are always reaching wider. <laughs> the reach is like, you know, like the Brahma Viharas, the loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. They are immeasurable minds of love. So there's this deep, beautiful bodhisattva aspiration in the practice to be immeasurable <laughs> in terms of the people, the experiences that we can um, hold and, and share the practice with. And I think uh, feeling so loved and included in the community and then seeing how few BIPOC were at our retreats in the U.S., which is, you know, well, in a few years will be majority BIPOC country. But when we were, when I was starting to go on retreats with Thai in the U.S., the retreats were getting much bigger, like thousands of people, and there would be hardly any BIPOC. It was a pretty hetero, you know, homogeneous uh, population, and that, that just filled me with a lot of sadness to not see um, people represented there that were part of society and that very much yearned for and needed these teachings. And so, um, so we, we approached Thai. We said, could we offer, would you offer, would you teach a, a people of color retreat? And so in 2004, that was the first one. And we thought maybe we'd get 70 people. I remember putting ads in different magazines with brothers and sisters. We put posters up through Harlem and, you know, well, 400 people came. 
And it was this huge, uh, you could see the need was so great. And in so many practice centers in the West, they were majority white. So if you were BIPOC, you would come there and there would be unconscious, you know, oppression, unconscious privilege and, and, and white supremacy expressed, whereas people would, you know, wonder why were you there? Were you there to clean? You know, and these things still happen today, today, you know, where, where white people unknowingly harm people of color because they, they, they're not used to being around them in daily life. So when we're together in a spiritual setting, uh, there's discomfort. And so, of course, that harms BIPOC practitioners who are coming also to have a sense of a spiritual home and to be loved and accepted and be part of something that can transform them in the depths of their being. So not only was it about opening access to retreats and creating spaces where BIPOC folks could feel understood and met, because there's a huge level of denial in many countries that are predominantly white that denies the history of racism, of slavery, of, you know, the indigenous genocide. And um, even now there's, in the U.S., there's a huge, you know, effort to ban books and to erase history that makes white people uncomfortable. So um, so when you live in that kind of society, um, it's really important to have spaces where, where that history isn't hidden because that's part of the healing. And that's, everyone needs that, not just BIPOC. White people need that too. Anyone of any privilege needs to be in a space where that history is acknowledged and integrated into our practice. Um, and so that's what we began to do. Out of these um, people of color retreats, we created a special touching of the earth practice to each ethnic group in the United States a whole paragraph with names um, honoring the land ancestors that were um, of indigenous uh, background, of African, of Asian, of Latinx, Latina, Latina. So that was very healing for people to have their ancestors recognized, to be welcomed in their full selves, and to hear in a spiritual setting racism being addressed because it was in other, you know, many centers, it was something that was sort of, oh, that's, you know, we don't talk about that. Or that's, you're, you're, you're getting caught in a sense of self. If you think that, you know, you're your race or you're, you're these other identities like spiritual bypassing. Right. And so, um, so creating spaces where, um, we could begin to address this very pernicious, and um, instabilizing feature that was is part of the DNA of our society, of our world. And so Thai began to address that. And then also it began to become a wider realm of awareness in the community where there were now white awareness groups forming in our Sangha to understand how whiteness works and how to be more free of it. Because the more all of us can be free of it, the more we can manifest our true Buddha nature. It's, it's part of freeing ourselves on the spiritual path for anyone is to undo and unravel these um, basically delusions 
and lies that our society has created, that history has wound around us about who has value, who doesn't, including patriarchy, our, our sexual orientation, our gender identity, you know, all the age, all, all these different ways that we uh, are privileged or not. And so I think um, what's been so transformative for BIPOC folks in, in coming into touch with the practice is, you know, it's, it's so common that the message from our society to people of color is, there's something wrong with you. And if you think that's a problem, that's your problem, right? That's the message. And so these spaces for BIPOC folks, first of all, because there are spiritual spaces about healing, about knowing our minds, the message is there's nothing wrong with you. And if you think there's something wrong in society, you are right. So it's an inner and an outer uh, affirmation of, yes, white supremacy exists and it is deadly. And here are Dharma practices that can help us as individuals, in our relationships, in our families, but also in our world, in our institutions, systemically, to see that everyone is, is being deceived by this story. And, um, and we can all wake up to a deeper truth about ourselves that can be extremely healing. Because these things aren't disconnected. White supremacy is completely connected with the climate crisis. You know, some teachers say it's the mother of the climate crisis. So as we get to this, like, how did this distinction come about of valuing, you know, parts of ourselves or groups of us over others? That's deeply embedded in all the ways we treat other species, our planet, you know, our atmosphere. So, Kyrgyz, let, let, I just want to sort of go back to different aspects of what you said, just because I think for our listeners, it's, it's really helpful to have a deeper understanding of mm-hmm. this. So, yes. and, and the first element of that, as you said, which I've experienced too, is that you go to different practice centres of Plum Village or other traditions. And, um, and even though the people who attend these may be full of mindfulness and, and practice, that there's this big blind spot. And it's not an intentional because those people are often mortified if these if they're shown to um, that that they are being racist. Yeah. So so two aspects of that. One is how have you dealt with your own feelings when you come across these situations? So it's very easy to feel anger, frustration, um, sadness, um, et cetera, et cetera. When you come across these and you, you, you face them, what is it that it brings up in you and how do you handle those feelings for yourself? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not very different for me than, than any other thing someone would project onto me. Um, if, you know, someone thought I took something and I didn't take it or, you know, had a a misperception about me. Um, I think, you know, seeing, and it's not even just when things happen to me, but if I witness something, 
um, that's uh, a manifestation of racism, white supremacy. Um, there is, you know, pain, anger that comes up. Um, often a sense of, of alienation of like, you know, this deep message that, that I've received my whole life that I don't belong because of how I look. Um, I remember as a child, I, I thought I had to have a thinner nose and I would hold my nose, the bridge of my nose, thinking I could make it smaller, look more like a white person's nose. So that was so deeply embedded in me, this sense that there was something wrong with me, preverbal, you know? So when things like this happen in life, now there's this sense of, it's, it's touching that old experience of, there's no, you know, people don't see me as belonging in, in this picture. Um, or other people who are like me aren't, aren't invited in, aren't welcome, or there's fear, you know. And, and I, I'm, I'm doing training in black-bodied groups to also notice the ways I freeze, the ways I shut down, the ways I tell myself there's something wrong with me especially at the body level, the somatic level, where so, so broadening out so it's not just my mind, but really my body of noticing where I'm fending off, where I, where I get afraid, you know. So I'm learning, I'm, I'm getting more vocabulary because I'm part of groups that are studying this in a very, like, inter, you know, very intricate scientific, you know, so, so if I am hearing, for example, two white men speak at the dog park and they're getting upset about something race-related and I notice my heart rate go up and this visceral fear as they were talking about, you know, black people. And I didn't even know what they were talking about, but they were angry. One of them was angry and it was about something a black person had done. And I was like, I could feel the level of fear like not a nor not, not you know not a, an experience i often have they weren't talking to me i was overhearing them but i really felt this fear i was aware of it i was like oh this is my collective consciousness being you know activated by you know i mean the people i come from had to be very careful if white people were angry historically right i mean that that could mean death so acknowledging that, recognizing there's nothing wrong with me for feeling afraid, taking care of that, soothing that, and talking about it, processing it with people that I trust, and giving it space and just noticing it took like a few hours to come back to a place of, of calm. It was like a low-level activation, but I was aware. And so I noticed the whole length of that experience and how triggering that was. And so, you know, honoring those experiences, feeling them in my body, bringing in care to my body, not pushing them away, not telling myself, oh, you're overreacting. No, I have every right to feel this way. And I can, I can care for that, you know? And I can still go back and talk to those people who I overheard speaking with a calm and an open heart because 
yes, you know, we may have different views on society, but once I'm caring for what I'm feeling, I'm not reactive to their, you know, who they are. And I can, you know, interact in a way that isn't from that place of fear and doesn't other them. It's interesting, Kairajul, because firstly, thank you for talking so deeply and profoundly. And, um, and, you know, I'm just aware that as I'm listening to you, I'm listening very, very closely and deeply to you in a way that I wouldn't normally do. And, and I, you know, so, you know, I'm a white man, 60. I, I'm Jewish. My mm. family on both sides were persecuted, da, 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 da. And yet I've been very privileged in this life. And, um, and so just listening to you and really allowing myself to be 100% there for you seems to be very important because mm. you're speaking a truth that needs to be heard, but not just heard, but, but deeply respected. Mm. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, for, for many listeners who um, are white and mm. maybe... And I would imagine if they're listening to this podcast, they care deeply and profoundly about mm-hmm. humanity and about discrimination, um, and but still have a lot of unconscious um, attitudes or responses. Mm-hmm. What would you like white people to do? Because mm-hmm. because you can say, well, just be aware, just listen, just read up about it, educate yourselves, and maybe all those are important, but. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of the quality of what you want people to, how you want this to be heard or responded to. I guess I would say, you know, be in your body, you know, whatever this brings up into you, whatever this brings up in you, feel it in your body. If you have a visceral reaction, if you have an urge to do something, if you have, you know, if you want to make noise or like to just listen and allow your body to respond. Um, And with everything about race, to do that, you know, so if you find yourself uncomfortable or embarrassed or triggered or not sure what to say or do to really stay in your body and let, let yourself dwell in that experience of what it's like to be uncomfortable. I think so much of our problems come from not being willing to be uncomfortable. James Baldwin has this quote, something like, the reason why white people are so afraid to not hate, to stop hating, is that if they feel what's beneath the hatred, it will be so uncomfortable they don't want to feel it. So the hate is a kind of protection. So if we can get through that, and it, for, you know, it's different for, for different folks, it's different things, maybe not hatred, maybe it's fear, maybe it's shame, maybe it's, you know, judgment or, or apathy. So what's beneath that? If we can hang out with what's beneath that, that is the answer to everything. It's not avoiding what's painful. Mm. 
So that, that's really interesting, Karajal, because, I, you know, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm feeling a tightness around mm. my belly. Mm. I'm feeling uh, my head is quite heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, a feeling almost of being, um, it's not quite right, but it's the word that came into my mind, feeling a little bit lost. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A sense of discomfort. Um, yeah. uh, which, I, which on, you know, I've, now recorded with Fatbu, you know, 21 episodes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this feeling hasn't come up before. Yeah. So so, so I think this is part of what mm-hmm. you're saying, isn't it? Saying mm-hmm. if we go back and listen to our bodies, my body mm-hmm. is telling me something like tightness, feeling a bit lost, um, feeling uncertain, um, not knowing how to handle that experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know that when I, you know, I was living in New York for five years, I was quite... Mm. Astonished, even though there's a lot of racism in the UK, but it was mm. it was hidden in view from view yeah. for me in a sense of the life I lived. Yeah. But coming to the States, it was just overwhelming. Yeah. Just the deep sense of pain that's right at the surface. It's yeah. not there's yeah. none of this is is hidden under I mean, while people might be trying to hide it again, I mean it's mm. so mm. such a strong sort of you know, it's you can't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just sort of, I, I, I'm, so I think it's really interesting that sense of how do white people respond and what white awareness is. I mean, mm-hmm. where, if what what advice would you give apart from feeling sort of, um, you know, the feeling in our body? You know, when you talk about within a Plum Village practice, their white awareness workshops and stuff. What, what can you give us a sense of what it is that what sort of awareness are we looking for? Yeah. In people? Well, I think it's exactly what you just described. It was so beautiful, Joe, of just actually naming the discomfort. Because part of white supremacy culture is to perform, to, to have to, you know, to be in a mask, right? To not be vulnerable, to not share what's really going on, because then we lose power, we lose control. That's the idea anyway. Um, that is a part of, of this whole culture that has, you know, created racism. And so what you just did, I feel, is so powerful of um, being with it, naming it, giving it space, not hiding from it. And I'm curious, after you talked about it, how do you feel in your belly now, in your head now, when you when you spoke about it or when we held it together in a way? Like, what do you notice now? Well, I feel lighter. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think the, the truth for me is that I'm not sure how to, how to be with this issue. Yeah. It's, um, it's so deep and, and, and yet... I feel also it's been very politicized in the yeah. sense of I think there's a lot of fear about mm. saying the wrong thing. I, I mean, before we started this conversation, I said, Kyra Jewel, if I say something inappropriate, yeah, yeah. please let me know. We can stop mm-hmm. and just re-record that bit yeah, because, yeah. because, because, yeah, there's this fear of, of it's, it's such a tender and sensitive mm. topic and, mm-hmm. and, and, and is so political for good reason that yeah. I think people also fear that even if they have good intent, that they'll get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. That they'll say the wrong thing. They'll say, 
the the wrong phrase. They'll, rather than people of colour, they'll use a mm-hmm. phrase that was yeah. you know it's no longer appropriate and yeah. or whatever. And, and so I, so I think it's it's hard to reach the tender part. Yeah, yeah. Because you have to go through a lot of layers to mm-hmm. get there. Mm-hmm. And I think really acknowledging that you know there's courses that I've taught with a white. Um, she, she was a nun, and then she had this robe. Melina Bondi, we've taught courses together. But the the culture in, in many spaces, like, like that course that we both taught about healing racialized trauma, um, is about um, being kind to ourselves. We're all learning, you know. White folks have a different journey than many folks of color, but we're all learning to wake up from this. And we can help each other. We can support each other. Now, that looks different, you know. It doesn't necessarily mean doing the work together. But, you know, uh, but sometimes it can. And then maybe having affinity spaces where we have a chance to speak with our own, you know, uh, groups. But this sense of, you know, nobody chose to have these views enter them by osmosis. <laughs> it, ha- it, it happened. Right. And so understanding that this is something that, you know, generations have passed on to generations after. And um, it's it's a lifelong process of of waking up to that, of of um, of healing that. And, you know, I just want to name a a wonderful uh, author and teacher, Resma Menikim who's written uh, My Grandmother's Hands, um, Pathway to Mending Our uh, Healing Trauma. It's Healing from Racialized Trauma, Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and and Bodies. And also his new book is coming out um, this spring, The Quaking of America. And it's about this being with this, what you were just describing, this discomfort that's beneath the surface, allowing the quaking to happen and really feeling it. So I study with him, many people do, and and there are many other groups that are doing wonderful work like this. I think just any space that is taking this as a topic, because just, just talking about race is already uncomfortable, right? And so being in spaces that um, invite the discomfort, that look at the history, I think a lot of it is also we don't know our history. And that's by design, you know, like learning, for example, in the UK, people are still getting money for, for their ancestors being forced to sell their slaves, their enslaved people. There's still people in the UK today receiving money from the government because their forefathers were forced to sell the people they had owned. So, yeah. I mean, this I is not, yeah, yeah, I, I, I read about it. I was like, wow. So this is like the history we don't know. There's so much we don't know. And so being committed to learning about it, being in groups where we somatically feel into the body, and because this enters us before we know words. This is so deep in us before we know words that we have to unravel it at the level of the body, right? It's all the, you know, 40 years, 50 years of trainings since the civil rights movement to undo this at the level of thought have not gotten us very far, right? We need to go into the body 
and learn how this operates at the body and how to undo it. And a lot of that, you know, the, the wisdom of healing trauma can really support us in this as well as, you know, the systems thinking that you, you are part of too. I encourage you, like, you know, the mistake would be to focus on what white people need to do because mm-hmm. also there's how I think, you know, as important, maybe not even more important is the work you're doing with communities of colour. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that the practice brings that may be specific to those communities and what are what are those communities and and i know it's a big generalization but if there are specifics of what what can support those communities in in healing these deep wounds because because the the persecuted and the and the persecutors as you say they they need to do their own work but in terms of those who've suffered generations where that trauma has been passed down mm. and is so embedded also in their thinking. Yeah. What, what is the work you do that helps to unlock that, that, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. resonates with people? Yeah. I think just having BIPOC spaces already is uh, one piece. I mean, that's not the only part of it. I think, you know, there are centers where I teach where sometimes it's a general retreat, so it was likely be majority white, but the majority of teachers are teachers of color, which is, is happening more now as more Buddhist lineages see we really need to train more, more teachers of color. If we want more folks of color to have access, they have to have also teachers that know their experience. But you'll have spaces that change radically, even if they're, you know, well, what I've noticed is when you have retreats where there are more teachers of color, more BIPOC tend to come and you naturally get a more mixed group. And both white folks and BIPOC feel many times more comfortable when the group actually looks more like it does in the real world. So I've seen white folks say, I come to a retreat that's mostly white and I don't feel comfortable because that's, that's what, you know, the, the world they live in is one, you know, where they want to have folks that they see in their daily life in their spiritual community. So, you know, what, what happens for BIPOC, I think, um, especially is just having a space where they can, where a priori it's understood that their experience is seen. So that can happen in a BIPOC-only space, but it can also happen in these other spaces I've described where they see people like them in leadership or they see more people that look like them as part of the general population on a retreat or at an event or whatever. So um, I think just taking care to have numbers already helps a lot to have people feel like, okay, I'm not, I don't have the added baggage of being one of the only people of color in this gathering, which is often the experience throughout daily life. And it just, it makes it so much harder sometimes to just relax, to just, you know, feel safe. So that piece, and then um, I think it's as simple as love. I mean, I just, I, I feel what Tai taught is love, and he loved his disciples, every one of us, everyone who came to us, I felt he was radiating love. And that's healing. 
And so if you're in a community where you, you are recognized for who you are, you're not asked to be something else, and then the people there are practicing to love, it's going to be a healing space. And, and love in the spiritual sense of, you know, each of us working to purify our minds and hearts, to see ourselves more clearly, to love ourselves, and then to really see each other clearly. Like the way you describe listening to me so deeply, I, I feel so moved and so grateful. And that quality of listening is what we bring, you know, in these spaces where we really want to hear each other's stories. We value each other. We honor where we've come from and um, you know both our suffering has a space so there's you know time and place and and it's appropriate to talk about our suffering so that's one of the things that's a gift in the dharma and our joy our strength our compassion our insight our wisdom all things we've received from our ancestors their incredible resilience that has space to be honored, to be seen, to be lifted up and celebrated. Because it's not only suffering, right? When we come together, we're not only talking about what we've um, lost or, or, or suffered. We're also coming together to share you know, all of our triumphs and the beauty of being in a BIPOC body, which there's much beauty in that experience. So I think that's where the health comes in, is not having to shut down any part of ourselves and also being affirmed in, in all of the strength. What I hear from you is, you know, the teaching is about no discrimination, mm. no superiority mm. complex, no inferiority complex, no equality complex. We're, mm. we're not mm. better, we're not worse, we're not exactly the same, but we, we respect and deeply honour each other. And, and, and so it feels almost people just want to be seen for who they are. They, they, they don't, it's not like people need anything special. Mm. It's just people want to just be mm. held and yeah. loved for who they know themselves to be. Yes. Deep down. Yes. Yes. There, and, and there's no there's no discrimination there mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. a white person, a person of colour, a woman, a man, you know, an indigenous person, a, a, someone from an industrialised country, you know, mm. you know, when it comes down to the core, it's just our humanity, isn't it? It's just... We just want to be seen, recognized, mm-hmm. accepted, yeah. and appreciated. And and actually no one doesn't want that. Yeah. And actually no one anything no one really wants more than that. Yes. 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 I I was just gonna say we just so I lead a weekly BIPOC meditation group with Maricela Gomez, also a, a Y member, a Plum Village practitioner, Dharma teacher, aspirant, and um And we just transmitted the five mindfulness trainings to this group along with the five contemplations on the mindfulness trainings, which she and Valerie Brown wrote as awarenesses around race and privilege and oppression um, that that are like 
reflections and paired to each of the mindfulness trainings. So I'd really encourage all of us to read them. They're accessible through the Plum Village website, and we can probably link to it. But um, we transmitted both of those in a ceremony. And it was so joyful. It was so profound, the level of, you know, people wrote to us after. I couldn't believe how close I felt to everyone, even on Zoom, how much I felt embraced and loved by the community in this transmission. And I think maybe 28, almost half of the group took the, took the trainings and received their Dharma names. They were so happy to receive a Dharma name, um, you know, to be part of this stream. So just, you know, what we, what we practice in BIPOC spaces is not very different in many. The content isn't different from other spaces, but this, um, this opportunity, like you say, to be seen, to be honored, to have their aspirations encouraged and nurtured, right? This bodhisattva path of practicing the five mindfulness trainings, practicing these contemplations on the mindfulness trainings. Huge. It's huge. You have a path. You know where you want to go with your life, you know? Encourage I just want to go back to one thing you raised, which, which in a sense, you, it was very profound, but very quick. And so I just want to give it a little bit more mm-hmm. space, which is um, the intersection of racial justice with climate justice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, of course, this is where Thai's teachings on interbeing come in very profoundly, that, that traditionally environmental causes were environmental, mm-hmm. social justice causes in a general way, social justice causes and race causes were race causes. And, and they mm-hmm. were all had their own um, support groups or protest groups. They mm-hmm. all uh, sought their own funding. They all yeah. saw their work in isolation. Yeah. Um, and what you just said is that at the root of our destruction of the climate can also be seen as inter-is with this deep racial injustice. Yeah. Can, can you just give us a little bit more explanation for those who this might be a new idea for or, or haven't explored it? What, what, is, what is the connection? Yeah. So attaching value to a phenotype, but really the, the reason for race, the reason for creating whiteness it came out of slavery. It came out of the need to control and capitalism. It was completely interlinked that the only way we're going to control this group of people for whom there were many uh, among indigenous, enslaved Africans and poor whites who came to the new world, there was so much in common. So there were often rebellions against the white elite. And so the the strategy was, look, let's make whiteness so uh, beneficial to poor whites that they won't align themselves with. And then then that's when um, the enslaved status became equated with a color, right? With a skin color. So, um, So this, you know, imperialism, colonialism, capitalism could only function on the basis of race. And these were the machines of climate change. 
right? They, they were born from uh, this need to, to use a group of people to create capital. You know, this, this country, the United States that I'm in, is only a world power today because of the enslavement of millions of Africans and the genociding of millions of native peoples. And so you wouldn't have climate crisis if you hadn't had that psychotic break of seeing, a hu- you know, human beings as, you know, at the, the ability to dehumanize based on this creation of a, of a notion of whiteness. And then everything else got defined against whiteness with black being at the bottom, you know? And, um, and all of that was done to uh, extract and control and, and uh, use the natural world for wealth, for wealthy few white men, not white women, not poor whites, right? And, and that was an expression of our disconnect from our world. And so this uh, way of cutting ourselves off from others and defining everything around um, our skin color um, went hand in hand with uh, all that has led us to destroy our planet. And to think that we were separate from our planet to begin with, because if we could see ourselves as separate from other humans, other species, you know, our planet. Um, and, and also just to note, when you mentioned these different groups that worked independently for so long, the environmental movement was largely white and moneyed and focused on the environment as something outside of us that had to be saved. Whereas indigenous and, you know, BIPOC cultural approaches to climate work, which were happening for a long, long time, but not recognized, took a different approach uh, of um, acknowledging that we are the planet. We are our environment. Ty's insights <laughs> very much align with that as well. Mm, thank you, Karajal. Be- beautifully, um, beautifully put. Thank you. Um, your book, We Were Made for These Times, 10 Lessons for Moving Through Change, Loss and Disruption, which was published by Pignet Hans Publishing House, Parallax Press. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you we so were much. made for these times. What, what are these times in your mm. own mind? Mm. Um, these are times no other human generation has had to face profound structural dissolution and uh, and really the last days of this what Joanna Macy right calls late capitalism this isn't this isn't going to stand for very much longer as it as it is and so these are times of apocalypse right this where the veil gets pierced that's the meaning in the greek uh, being able to see through an illusion into the, what's more true. So these are times of a, a lot of potential collective awakening. And there are also times of great suffering and separation and illusion. You know, 
the pandemic, I think, is just a beginning. Uh, and it's already been so devastating that, you know, countries that had come out of extreme poverty are now going to see that those gains set back for decades because of the pandemic. Um, but we are also being, you know, told by scientists that we have a, less than 10 years, maybe eight years now, to, to come about face before, you know, the already devastating consequences that we're already seeing become, you know, debilitating, um, where, we, where our society just simply won't be able to function. And it's that we already see it happening with the shortages of labor and, you know, the shipping issues and, you know, things that we could rely on that we are not able to rely on. The, the fact that we don't share a common truth. The news used to be something everyone had faith in, whatever, you know, their backgrounds. Now we, we're having these silos of information and we don't agree on the same reality. How do you have a country when you don't agree on the same reality? Um, the last time that happened in the U.S., we had a civil war. So we're in very dangerous and difficult and extremely potent times where we really need to keep our heads above water. And we can. So, so when you say we can, because you have 10 lessons for moving through, um, and of course we don't have time to go through the, or the 10, but, but if you were to, and hopefully people listening will want to get the book and then they can go into it in detail, but, but what's the essence of what you're telling people because Thai's teaching are about being in the present moment about impermanence about coming back to your breath about um about compassion about um letting go of this disconnection so there there you know there are many teachings um but in terms of actually be you know what people need now as a general rule to help them through these times, what, what, what is your essential teaching here? It's what we've been talking about, um, that if we can be with what is happening in the present moment, and we can, if we cannot resist it, not push it away, not judge it, but embrace it with mindfulness, with kindness, with friendliness, with curiosity, with a clear mind, you know, with presence, which can be cultivated in every moment, then we have at our disposal so much more to meet the difficulties than we would if we were resisting and pushing away and fighting what is. So that if we can be with what's here, rely on each other, see each other, be with each other, build community, and honor what's happening. This is a natural consequence of what has come before. Then we can be in the next moment and the next moment and the next, whatever it is. So we don't have to be stuck. We don't have to be, um, we don't have to we don't have to suffer, actually, as difficult as things may become or already are for many. 
there are practices and ways of approaching our life and our collective dissolution that if we if we surrender to it if we flow with it it's that's actually a creative process so i often think of the caterpillar that builds this cocoon and starts to dissolve into this soup we're in that process now we're in this dissolving but if we can trust it and open to its possibilities even in the darkness even in the pain of the loss we can more we're we're more able to access the potentialities of what it can become then if we if we say no we 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 shouldn't dissolve but a caterpillar has to dissolve if it's going to become a butterfly i don't know what we're going to become i don't know that we're going to turn into a butterfly species <laughs> that transcends this time but but i know that there is a reason for this that if we can move with it and and adapt right this deep adaptation jen bendel we can we have much more power to create something else than if we are fighting what's happening and i think that's the spiritual practice um gift is is all these practices of being with our breath being with our body being with each other tracking what's happening and all we have to do is be in the present all we have to do is meet what's happening now we get so immobilized and drained of our energy by trying to meet what's coming but that's not here yet all we are co- required to do is meet what is here and we can do that we are all in the present moment <laughs> we can do that and we may need support we can get you know we can rely on each other we can go to the earth the earth can help us too we have resources and that will help us meet the next moment and the next moment and the next so we can move with the dissolving rather than against it oh well, i wish i could talk as eloquently and profoundly as you i can you train me up please i want to i want to come and be trained up by you um carol jill just finally um one of the things that actually ties very respected for is that he didn't say buddhism strictly mm-hmm. he was very he ha- he saw the real deep connection between buddhism and other religions especially christianity mm. and 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 recognized the power of the dialogue between mm. those religions and and i know that you know one of your great aspirations is mm. to is to in a sense deepen and that dialogue and actually bring it into into a living living breathing community mm. um it'd be lovely just to just to hear what that aspiration is and, and given that your husband is is very deep into the christian tra- <laughs> in the christian tradition you're very deeply in the buddhist tradition you know you're obviously you're trying to bring forth into the world what you already have created as a mm-hmm. in a, as a relationship so it'd be lovely to sure. first of all know about your relationship given sure. that you know that that um the monastics are celibate and you, yes. one of the reasons you left is to no longer be celibate so what's it like having a deep profound relationship and and then how do you want to bring this work forward yeah yeah well i i feel again so lucky to have met someone who has 
such a deep calling for um, spiritual awakening. So he kind of also had a semi-monastic path. Not he wasn't ordained, but he he really dedicated his life to serving homeless youth in New York City for 15 years. Started a a foundation and um, and really didn't ha- have a lot of his energy going towards relationships because that was really his calling to work with um, homeless youth. Um, then he felt really called to do Episcopal priest work. And so that's when he really felt, oh, I would really, really would be good to be in a relationship. And I, I think for me also, there's a sense of like, there's a, uh, an activation when, when we, when we began to, to form a relationship, like there were he was bringing out things in me. I was bringing out things in him that we actually, we really needed each other's, these, these impulses. Uh, so it was actually, he, he listened to this course I had created and said, you should make this into a book. So that's why the book is there is because he said, you know, this, you already have it all written. Why don't you make it into a book? Anyway, um, so it's, it feels very, um, whole to uh to be on a spiritual path with someone who um where there's really deep love also like human (laughs) love and and uh and affection and care and attraction and beauty and romance and um you know to to really have the, the dimension of sharing our aspiration and that he's very deeply committed to his path as a Christian and really experiences the love of, of Christ and of God. He often experiences it as motherly uh, God. And I experience Thai as very motherly, very feminine in his expression of um, the sacred. So uh, it, it just feels very much like I feel like I've been led kind of both of us have described this that we our whole lives we felt led <laughs> so i felt led to become a monastic i it's like something this this flow has has been you know leading us to where we needed to be so i felt pulled i felt led out of the monastic life he felt called into the priesthood and then we it was quite amazing how we found each other we we both taught at schumacher college and basically in in one zoom call of just you know it was just you know i i didn't know anything really about him but i knew after talking to him in one call that i was that he was going to be my partner um so that kind of like push being brought together and um and so i think now this feeling of well we both have this very deep commitment to awakening our our minds and hearts and we're called to do something together and so this bringing christian and buddhist practice um in in real like concrete ways so we do practices together we practice we we say gratitudes before we eat we you know reflect on the day before we go to bed we um practice beginning anew uh we try to do it every week um, where we don't take things for granted in our lives. And so, so there's this wish to really, for us personally, to live 
uh, a life that where practice comes first. And so we need to be in a practice center to do that. So we want to start a Buddhist Christian practice center where we can offer training and give folks a real experience where people can come and live like like they do in other practice centers. And we have a, a schedule from morning to evening of ways to, to engage. And, and I really think that what this time calls for with, with so much change, with so much disruption, with so much at risk, is more and more of us who are holding down the fort, <laughs> you know, who are really uh, doing the deep spirit work of seeing interbeing. And you need to slow down to do that. You need to have less... Uh, there needs to be space for that kind of consciousness to emerge. And so uh, I really think that's what, what I'm called to do, what we're called to do, and to provide space for others to do that, that is not caught by the notion of Buddhism, the notion of Christianity, that can really receive the fruits of those traditions uh, as they manifest, at least in this situation, through me and my partner. And we do we uh, we do a monthly group. We just started a monthly group last month, and it's every last Monday of the month, um, a Buddhist Christian community of con- contemplation and action. So it's a space for where we are going to be practicing together these different practices from our various traditions and what it means to manifest that in the world. Um, I think we need to give. We need to give you. We, we're draining you of so much. We're like <laughs> sucking the life out of you. So I want to respect um, your time. I'm going to ask you maybe if you're willing, because uh, Brother Fat Who is not here, and he normally mm. gives the mm. guided meditation at the end to mm. offer us a short guided meditation. But apart from appreciating your time and energy mm. and, and deep insight. Uh, and the way you have talked about such deep issues with such uh, calmness and clarity and insight has been beautiful. Mm. So thank you. And I, and I just one final thing. So our, what our readers can't see is that you're sitting on the Zoom call. You're sitting and behind you on your left side is a large picture, a black and white picture of Tai. Mm. And he's sort of, he's sitting down with his... Uh, hands uh, together and he's looking towards you and, and the whole time you've been speaking it's like Tai has been mm. smiling at you and, and, mm. and imperceptibly I'm sure I've seen him nod several times <laughs> saying you know saying Kyle yes I agree yes you know it's like it's like um, it's like he's looking at you with it's like he's looking at you from with deep love it's quite extraordinary I, it, it's hard to explain but it, it just um, it feels he's been present mm. in this conversation and um, you, and acknowledging you and your contribution so that's lovely but Karajal would you be honor would you honor us with a short guided sure. meditation of a few minutes just to sure. allow us to resettle come back to the mm-hmm. present moment and close sure. thank you
So, so noticing what's here. Maybe it's your breath. Maybe it's the contact between your body and what's supporting you right now. Maybe it's the temperature of the air on your skin. Maybe it's sounds in your surroundings. Or something in your body, something that's buzzing or painful or tense or at ease or cold or warm. Coming back to connect with whatever you're noticing, whatever you're aware of. And not asking it to be any other way. Seeing if you can offer space and time and permission for whatever this experience is to be here and to unfold. If you feel resistance to this moment, for whatever reason, giving space for your resistance to be here. So if there's any kind of reaction to what you're experiencing, letting the reaction become what you allow and give space for. Listening. And opening to what's here. Whatever it is. Letting yourself be held 
by the earth, by the present moment, just as you are. Dear listeners, um, if you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on uh, Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on other platforms that carry podcasts, and on our very own Plum Village app. And uh, this podcast has been brought to you by the generosity of donors, donations to the Thich Nhat Hanh Foundation. So if you would like to contribute to the foundation uh, to support these podcasts, then please go to the Town Foundation website. Thank you and go well. is in.